This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello once again, this is Life Elsewhere and I'm your host, Norman B. I'm going to be speaking with two authors in this edition, two writers of fiction. Yet one uses documented facts and history as the basis of her book, while the other author is reluctant to reveal if her book has its basis from her own life. I'll welcome Kerry Mayer back to Life Elsewhere to talk about her intriguing novel, The Paris Bookseller. This is Kerry's fictionalized account as Sylvia Beach, the owner of the renowned Paris bookshop, Shakespeare and Company. We're also going to take a diversion into some difficult-to-classify music. First up, we join the very start of my Zoom conversation with author Jean Chen Ho. Hello, how are you? I'm, I'm okay. I'm hanging in there. Yeah, I know what you mean. Are you in Los Angeles? <laughs> I am, yeah. Oh, my goodness. You've had to get up early for this then, haven't you? Yes. I've been awake since about 5.30 this morning. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, well, sorry for you having to get up that early, but thank you for joining me. This is lovely. My guest is Jean Chen Ho. Her debut novel is titled Fiona and Jane. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. Hi. Thanks for having me, Norman. I love your book. I, and I want to share something with you. I And I'm not sure if this is, this may be even a confession, I think, because, um, in fact, I can't remember the last time this happened for me, that I found myself getting mentally involved with the with the characters in a book to such a degree that I was apprehensive about meeting you. Because once I got to speak to you, I would then have to admit to myself that Fiona and Jane weren't characters that I thought I knew. They were fictitious. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I really believed in your characters. I really believed in these two ladies. Listen, if you want to cancel the interview right now, (laughs) we can sign off right now. (laughs) But of course, I really do want to talk to you about Fiona and Jane. It is a delightful book. I want to know the story behind the story because I'm, I'm sort of guessing that everybody and their uncle is going to say, who are you? Are you Fiona or are you Jane? Um. Well... First of all, thank you for reading my book and saying that uh, you connected with my characters. That means so much. Um, as to who am I, Fiona or Jane, I would say that I'm both of them. Yeah. And I'm also every other character in this book because I wrote I wrote everybody in this universe. Yes. So, yeah. So I would say that... Um, You know, one of the questions that I've been getting is how much of this draws from my real life, my real friendships. And what I've been saying is that probably 90 to 95 percent of the events and circumstances in this book are totally made up. You know, I have never, you know, had my boyfriend empty my bank account. I (laughs) have never slapped a girlfriend because she insulted my mother, you know, like I, you know, I made, I made up all of these scenarios, 
But what I did draw from is sort of the emotional terrain of the friendships that I have had in my life. Right. Yes. And of course, you give us such a lot of insight into family life. But as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking to myself, I wanted to ask you, Jean, was there was there anything in writing the story, Fiona and Jane, that you were concerned about in maybe because it would be misunderstood or too con- confessional that people would think that you were speaking about yourself and, and you were revealing too much? Ooh. You know, what the th- interesting thing about fiction, I think, is that um, even when you're not writing about the specific circumstances of your life, it's still very revealing because why are you writing these characters and their psychological concerns and their emotional difficulties or conflicts, right? I think that um, even if, you know, the things in my book didn't happen to me personally, you can sort of get a sense of what I'm interested in exploring with, um, you know, their family relationships, romance, and definitely the ups and downs of their friendship. You know, what does friendship mean? How can we love our friends as much as we love a romantic partner? Or how do we separate our own identities as individuals from, you know, a best friend that could have seen, that might have seen you grow up for a really long time, right? And so I think that um, I don't necessarily have a fear of people thinking that, you know, these are stories that um, come from my own life because. I know that that's not true, but I think the fear perhaps is is feeling vulnerable to being judged for, you know, sort of the ideas or difficulties that I'm trying to, to work through with this universe and these characters. Yes. If that, if that makes sense. Yes, it makes perfect sense. Yes, it's a great answer to a kind of odd question. I want to talk about the title because you mentioned this at the very last page of the book. And I want to, I want to jump to that because uh-huh. I was, I was wondering about it as I'm reading the book, I'm wondering about why was it Fiona and Jane and not Jane and Fiona? Could you explain for my listeners what I'm talking about at the end of the book? Yeah. Well, you know, um, Jane is sort of a, she's sort of a ne'er-do-well, right? And so throughout her 20s, she's sort of drifting about, she parties a lot, she ends up managing an apartment building, you know, she borrows money from her mother or her mom just sort of like financially supports her. So, you know, she's never been somebody who's had to be very financially independent or ambitious, but she's always wanted to be a screenwriter. And by the end of the book, she tells Fiona that she's working on a new project about the history of their friendship. And so she suggests uh, that she's going to call it Jane and Fiona. And sort of as a joke, Fiona says, I think it sounds better as Fiona and Jane. Right. And, you know, I I ended up choosing that title just for the sound of it. I think uh, sonically Fiona and Jane sounds a little more pleasing to the ear than the other way around. Yes. Yes. So now we need to sort of back up a little bit more. And and for my listeners, just give them a little overview without giving up 
too much of the, of the story. Um, it's a story about two young ladies. Well, I'm going to let you do it for us. So you can just tell us just a brief overview. Sure. The book is a, a linked story collection. There are 10, 10 stories in the book told in alternating voices, uh, some from the point of view of Fiona, some from the point of view of Jane. And it spans, uh, you know, over two decades of their friendship. They're best friends who met in the second grade. And the stories explore their lives as teenagers and then their 20s and 30s. Um, and through their friendship, they explore sexuality, identity, family, legacies, mental health, um, and really learn about who um, each uh, of them are to themselves and in relationship to um, her best friend. You know, Jean, I think this is why I identified with it so much because um, it reminded me of friendships that I have had and, and friendships that have lasted for an awful long time. Mm -hmm. How they do go in and out, how they sort of weave in one part of your life and then things disappear and then they come back together again. But there's that connection that you have that starts off and remains. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering for you whether that was the, the was the, was the essential part of where you wanted to go with the book, because that's where it comes across to me. Yeah. Cause I think when you have a friend who's known you since childhood, really um, in some ways it's, it's, it can be really difficult for that person to see you change because they might have formed an idea of who you were when you were 16 or 19 or 22. And then, you know, years later, as you become a different person, as we all do, um, I think that uh, it, it can be hard, I think, to, to accept that the person you knew when you were young has really become somebody who, is almost unrecognizable, right? And so I think for both Fiona and Jane in this story, each woman is on her individual journey to find out yeah. who she is. But, um, you know, one thing that I wanted to, to use formally with um, the idea of this linked story collection is that even if you're reading a story from Jane's point of view, for example, you get to see what she's thinking about when um, she's reminded of something about Fiona and vice versa. You know, that's the part that I think I like so much about your book. You paint the characters so well. You give us a taste of the individual characters. And it, and it really it really works, which is why I said right at the very beginning, I really identified with and I really got to like and at some points dislike these characters. I just wondered for you, as you're writing and as you're creating the characters, was there a point when you liked one more than the other? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, I have to say there's moments when I hated both of them too. They're just, they're just awful sometimes to each other and to their lovers. Um, they're awful to their parents sometimes. Um, and I have to admit as the writer, it was pleasurable to make them awful in some ways and to have them misbehave and make bad choices um, that are going to land them in trouble um, either as teenagers or as adults, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have to say, yeah, it, it switched between how much I disliked or disapproved of Fiona or Jane, but ultimately um, 
I fell in love with both of them. And I think that's what happens when you pay attention to something or someone so intensely as I did in writing this book. You know, I really felt like I got to know them as dear friends of my own. Yes. Yes. You you answered inadvertently there. My next question was about to be, did you enjoy writing this book? Of course you did. I I, I kind of knew that you did, but then you, you just talked about it in such such descriptive uh, tone there that I, I know that you just must have loved writing this book. Oh God, no. I have to say at this point, <laughs> yes, this is, I mean, today is very exciting because we're talking on the actual publication date. So um, it's really exciting. And, you know, I just got the finished copies of the book, which, you know, I'll hold up here. I got yes, these, yeah, you know, yeah. a couple of weeks ago and it was, it was really just surreal to hold the actual book in my hands. And so this stage of things, having finished writing, I love it. You know, it feels great. Yes. But the process of writing this book, which took me the last five years, was not always pleasurable. Not easy. Yeah. No, there were times when I didn't know where I was going next um, and didn't know how one story connected to another. So it, it was it was a lot of revision to get to to where this book is today. I want to get back to the to the to the stories and, and the episodes in just a little bit, but there's an area that I also want to get to before I forget. Before we go any further, I want to remind my listeners who just joined us. I'm talking to Jean Chen Ho. It's her debut novel. It's called Fiona and Jane, and I just love this book. I really enjoyed it. There's a topic that you did mention a little bit ago about what goes on between the two ladies as they go through their adolescence and then they mature into their twenties. And that's sex. Sex comes into your book, but it comes in in such, I think, such, I think it's such, it's such a shame when sex sort of rears its ugly head, so to speak. And it just becomes, it's just about, you know, sex. But you, I just want to quote something from your book because I just love this. And, and this is kind of sexy, but at the same time, it's like just an everyday thing. You say, like, and this is, this is Jane thinking, Jane talking, I believe. She says she's at she's at the dentist. Dr. Park is a dentist. And she says, when he put his fingers in my mouth, the smell of latex turned me on. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness gracious. Yes, I can just imagine that. I can imagine that happening. Yes, because you're in that horrible, vulnerable position. Yet at the same time, it's such a sensuous thing. And it's horrible, wonderful and here she is having a fantasy at the same time. Just lovely. I love that. Hmm. Well, thank you. I think that um, scent is so erotic, you know, I mean, we're still in this COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the things that I've read about in the last couple of years and, you know, actually heard from, from friends who got COVID is that, you know, the loss of smell is so devastating, you know, much more than the sense of taste, because as it turns out, I think scent is much more closely tied to primordial emotions and memories, right? Like you can smell something and immediately be transported to a specific time in your life. I felt that way, even like putting on a lipstick that I used to wear when I was 25 and I'm like back in the club that I used to go to. So yeah. I, I think that scene, it's, it's just, um, 
It's a little funny because, you know, obviously I'm referencing the smell of like a latex condom in this really weird context of a dentist sticking his hand in your mouth. So, Jean, your book really could be read in separate chapters or, or parts as a series. And that leads me to ask the question that is, of course, I have to ask this. Have you shopped this book around for as, as a TV series? Are we going to see an HBO special? Is it going to be on Netflix? Um, it's a possibility. Um, and, you know, that would be so thrilling. Yeah. Um, right now, the book exists as a book and I love it as a book. So right. I hope that it has a wonderful long life as uh, a book. And um, if things happen for the book in another genre, you know, being adapted, um, I would be grateful. But, you know, my dream has always to, to be uh, a writer of books and a novelist. So yes. this is yeah. this is sort of like, you know, I've already I'm already living my fantasy and anything else is just the cream on top. Well, there's two things, Jean, before you mm -hmm. go. One. I elect to be part of the casting crew when you cast the TV series. I want to I want to be in on that, please. Uh -huh. And because I think I do a good job. And <laughs> the other is if this is your first, this is your debut novel, I think great things are ahead for you. I'm looking forward to reading more. From Jean Chen Ho, who has been my guest. Her debut novel is titled Fiona and Jane. It is a delightful read. Thank you so much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thanks for having me, Norman. Have a good rest of your day. Details to Jean Chen Ho's book, Fiona and Jane, plus all the other books and music we feature on Life Elsewhere are always up at lifeelsewhere.co. Still to come, new music that defies classification. First, my conversation with Kerry Mayer on her new novel, the Paris bookseller, right after this. You are listening to Life Elsewhere with Norman B. You can learn more about this program at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. My guest is Kerry Mayer. Her new book is called The Paris Bookseller. Kerry, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So this book, like other books that you've written, um, is fiction, but it's based on a, on a real person, a real topic, real stories, real events. And you go to, to some length at the back of the book to explain your sources and the reasons and, and all the rest of it. And I quite honestly, I found that fascinating. That's just, I mean, the book is fascinating. First of all, I should say, because I'm stepping on myself here, this <laughs> is a most enjoyable book. It really is. Oh, thank it's, you. I, you know, some books get to you, some books you, and I think one of the reasons for, for me, or a couple of reasons, is I love books. I love Paris. And I love going back in time. And so I want you to tell my listeners, just give a brief overview so we know what we're talking about as we get mm -hmm. into having some discussion about the book. 
Right. So the Paris bookseller is the story of Sylvia Beach, the American woman who opened the original Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris in 1919. So here we are, we're Paris in the 20s, right? And so her store very quickly became what I like to call the home of the lost generation writers. So, you know, all of those famous writers from the 1920s that you know, Gertrude Stein, Ezra Pound, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, they all came to her store and spent really quite a lot of time there. Um, and as if that wasn't enough, um, she also published the very first edition of James Joyce's novel, Ulysses, after it had become a banned book in a huge obscenity trial in New York in 1921. Okay, good. Thank you for summing that up for us. Okay, let's, 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 let's delve into it. One of the questions that I was going to ask you, but you answer it in your book, uh, I was about to ask you, what prompted you? And of course, you tell me, or <laughs> you tell the readers that Sylvia Beach's own book, um, and the title of which I've got is Shakespeare and Company, isn't it? Is it is Shakespeare and yes. Company, yes. Yeah. But that spurred you to, to do this book. But talk to me about that. Talk to me about how that how that sort of really manifested itself in just in just reading her book and then going, hmm, I think I can put some my imagination to work here. Yeah, well, so there's there's sort of half of my life story is is encapsulated in this. I'll be very brief, though. So, you know, I read her her memoir, Shakespeare and Company, which is a really very small little book. Um, more than two decades ago when I was an undergraduate in college and I was an English major. I was obsessed with the 1920s. You know, I took all the classes that I possibly could um, that had to do with that time period. And I was especially entranced by the expat community of that decade. And so, you know, I'm wandering around in my college town, you know, how they have those great bargain you know, book bins in front of the bookstores. And so there was Sylvia's memoir, like for a dollar or something. So I pluck it out of the bin. I buy it because it's, it's, it's Paris in the twenties. I take it home and I read it and I'm just enthralled by her story. And, you know, I didn't, I can't remember anymore if I knew that there was a Shakespeare and company in Paris, there, there is still a Shakespeare and company in Paris and it's, it is not the original, but it's, it's a wonderful store. Um, And so I'm reading this book and I I essentially file it away in my mind under good to know. Um, Fast forward 20 years. Here I am. I write, as you say, I've I've written two other novels, um, a historical biographical fiction, one about um, Kathleen Kennedy, also about then about Grace Kelly. And when I was sort of looking for a third subject, Sylvia Beach occurred to me really quickly. And I was amazed because I have been carrying her story around in my heart and mind for more than two decades um, that I had. I hadn't thought of this sooner, (laughs) but I'm really glad actually that it it didn't occur to me sooner because I think, I think this would have been a tough one for me to write as a first try at historical fiction because I'm writing about my own literary. I mean, I'm a writer, right? I, I, I'm writing about my own literary heroes. So um, I needed the practice of writing about the Kennedys and and Alfred Hitchcock first. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You know, as a side note, I when when I read that you had got the inspiration from her book, mm-hmm. a little light bulb light bulb went off in my head, and I thought, you know, 
I'm sure somewhere in my archives, I have that book. So I rummaged around and I got a lot <gasps> of books. You know, I rummaged around and I found that I have a copy no! of that book. And yes, and I remember buying it, Kerry. I remember buying it. Do you know Foyle's Bookstore in Charing Cross Road in London? I mean, it's like- I the- do. I've, yeah. I've lived in London. I know Foyle's, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. So this was, oh gosh, oh. I don't even know when it was. I think it was when I was at art college. Because I went to art college wow. in London. I think it was that long ago. So it was years and years and years ago. So anyway, it's oh. a side note. So I have a copy of that book and I dug it out after I'd read your book. So that's, yeah, so that's terrific. Oh, was, that's yeah. a great story. So so it is, a, it is a great book for young artists to read. Yes. I think. It really yes. is. Yeah. You yes. know, and as an art student, I mean, now I'm going off again, but as an art student, that's kind of what you did. You sort of rummaged around for books that were going to be inspiring. So, yeah. So right. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. So, yes. So the big takeaway for me and tell me if I'm wrong about this, uh, about your book, The Paris Bookseller, is quite simply, it's a story of passion. It's a story of love split into two parts. It's Sylvia Beach's passion for books, the bookstore and the authors, but so encompassed in that is is books. Is is that's mm-hmm. that's her big passion. But it's also a it's also a story of love and passion for Adrienne, her partner for for quite some time. But then they then they split. Adrienne sort of betrays her, and and then they get back together as friends. You say, and and then Adrienne goes and commits suicide, which is just a tragic ending. Talk to me about whether I've got that right, that it is a, it's a story of passion and a story of love. I think it is absolutely a story of passion and love. And, you know, the, the so Sylvia and, and Adrienne do have this um, m- m- almost two decade long romantic uh, partnership. Um, you know, they lived together um, in what had been Adrienne's apartment and became their, their apartment together. And they share this mutual passion for books. You know, they, they are voracious engaged readers they wind up later in their their lives translating together they they together they translate um the love song of j alfred prufrock into french um yeah so they you know i think it's interesting you know so the romantic aspect of the relationship definitely has its ups and downs but what brings them back together as friends is really this shared passion for literature and for their their mutual respect and admiration for the writers that are parts of their lives and come to their stores. And one part of the book, well, one part of the story, really, and, and, and you talk about this in your afterward, is the openness of gay marriages in the 20s that in some respects. Yes, please go ahead. Yes. Well, yeah. So I want to be careful about the word marriage only because they weren't married, right? Yes, they, were par- yes, they were partners. Yes, partners. Yes. They would have been called companions, companions probably yes, in, in yes. this, in this time period. So I think famously, right. Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas lived together in Paris as an, as an accepted couple. It was couple, as yeah. if they were married, right. They lived together. They, they, when they were invited to parties, they both they they both went. And when they when they hosted parties, it was hosted by the two of them, right? Right. So yes. and and I think one of the things that was very interesting to me in my research was to discover that the concept of the closet didn't really come into being until the 30s. So yes. during this time in Paris, um, well, during this time anywhere, right? Um, same-sex relationships were really viewed differently, and especially in Paris 
because same-sex relationships in Paris, had, in France, had been decriminalized since the time of the French Revolution. Right. So this is why we correctly, I mean, I think many people who think about Paris just think of it as this sort of haven for all kinds of bohemian and alternative lifestyles. And that is an accurate thing because it, it has in fact been a more open and inviting city than other cities might've been at the time. You know, uh, you know, in the twenties, gay bars and cabarets were having a moment in New York and Berlin as well, but they were much more underground than they could be in Paris. I mean, listen, in Paris, it's not like they, it wasn't like the Le Du like, you know, it wasn't as out there as that, um, as the regular cafe culture, but it didn't have to be as, underground as it was in other places other places yes and you know as you're saying that i'm thinking about all the times i've been to paris how in some respects and i guess most cities have this but paris has got this it's got definitely this kind of arty bohemian sort of side to it and then there's the other side of paris then there's that sort of mitty gritty kind of Parisian thing that you really don't get anywhere else. It's, I, I think one of the things about your book that I loved is, is another thing, is, is that you talk about Paris, you describe Paris, you give us a feel of Paris. And anybody that's never been to Paris, I urge you to go and just relive some of what Kerry writes about <laughs> in her book. It's oh, a, thank you. Yeah, it's such that's... a magical city. It really is. I got a question for you, which yes. after yes. reading your book, I I started thinking about this very seriously. And and that is, could this, could this have happened at any other time? Could Sylvia Mm. Beach have opened a bookstore in Paris and a little side street and take on an author who was very controversial and mixed with all these other different uh, authors? Uh, Could this have happened at any other time? And I'm thinking about right now, today, where we think we're so sort of, we know so much and we're so liberal and we're so, what do you think? Oh, that is such an interesting and hard question. Um, (laughs) You know, I think, you know, I think something that was very different in the 20s, 100 years ago than now is that culture was a little bit more, a little bit less diffuse, you know, like when, Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald became famous. They were like famous, famous. They were like movie star famous, you know, like they were followed. These were writers that were followed in the same way as Hollywood, like Clark Gable. Right. Okay. We just don't have that in literature now. Um, I can't think of a writer whose, whose fame is the, is the same as like, you know, Bradley Cooper, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, um, you know, except maybe the, 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 the actors who become writers like Ethan Hawke, you know, so, uh, you know, I don't know. So if that's, I think now it's, it's like the comparison, it's really hard to compare. Right. And I, but I do think sort of to answer, I think the essence of your question, I do think that this moment in the twenties in Paris and Shakespeare and company was really a lightning in a bottle kind of moment. It was really just the absolute perfect set of things. Um, You know, there was this incredible conservatism and censorship that was taking hold in England and in, in, in America that really drove the writers who wanted to do anything different out 
Um, and they found themselves in Paris, which was recovering from the First World War. Um, and, and, you know, many of these writers had either fought in the First World War or driven ambulances, as, as Ernest Hemingway famously had. And so they were all kind of in recovery in one way or another yes. from this terrible time that they were coming out of. And that in America, especially, you know, um, where Ulysses what became a banned book because it was considered obscene. Now we now we don't see it that way at all. But at the time, you know, it was regarded with such suspicion um, because of its of its avant-garde qualities, because of the honesty with which it dealt with the body and the mind and and like the absolutely crazy, wonderful ways it deals with sentencing and paragraphing and all the other formal aspects of writing. Um, but the, these things were really regarded with suspicion in the United States and in, and in England. And so Paris was a refuge from all of that for these writers. Yes. You know, one of the things that was behind my question, and I, and I think this is going to sound so obvious when I say it, because I was thinking about opening a bookstore these days when you've got Amazon just dominating. Oh, everything, I know. You know, and it just made me and I went off on a tangent thinking. Yeah. Talk to me about the dialogue, the imagined dialogue, because it's. Mm. It comes across to me, and, and I think in your other books, uh, it, the, the same thing. You've got an amazing ability to make me believe this is exactly what Sylvia Beach actually said. Well, thank you, first of all. I love writing dialogue. I always have. Um, it's been always been one of my favorite things to, to, to compose and revise and everything in my fiction. So um, I have a lot of fun with it. And I think, you know, when I'm writing about real people or people who had been who have been alive. Um, you know, what I do is I try to read as many interviews and letters. Um, you know, I read Sylvia's own memoir, which is in her voice um, from a later time in her life, but it's still her voice. Yeah. So I try to kind of put, put their voices in my ear as much as I possibly can. And and then I write the dialogue and, you know, there's a, there are some drafts that nobody sees when I'm, when I'm still trying to like get it right. Um, but, uh, you know, because I tend to write in a close third person, you know, in this novel, it's really from Sylvia's perspective, yes. even though it's in the, it's in the third person, but that means that the dialogue, you know, the words that I put in other characters' mouths are really the only time we hear their voice. So I, I take that dialogue writing really seriously. Those are the, those are the moments when we get to get sort of as much as we can inside the heads of those other characters when they're speaking their minds. Yes. You know, from the book, I, my, another takeaway is that you were completely fascinated by the characters specifically Sylvia, it, it, mm -hmm. you really, really are just leply enamored in some respects. But I wonder if having written the book and done all the research, did you like Sylvia? Do you, did, does she come across to you, to, to, to Kerry, as a, as a really likable person? Yes, she does. I do like her. I, I really, I have great, I really admire her too. I mean, she really... She did, even by today's standards, I think that what she did was remarkable, right? Like yes. on her own, going to Paris as a, as a single woman with no real like fortune to her name or anything like that. It wasn't like she was independently wealthy. She goes to Paris. She like 
asks her mom for some money, which she gets and, and like opens this store because she has a vision and a, and a dream and, and an example in Adrienne's store. Um, but it's really, it's really her own life and livelihood on the line when she opens Shakespeare and company. And then, and then it's, it does, it starts doing well. And she does it again in the publication of Ulysses. She, she has a vision she she believes in what she's doing and she and she really puts herself out there and she in her own memoir, memoir she talks about um feeling that being in paris at this time and opening shakespeare and company was an adventure yes. and i really do think of her as somebody who embraced adventure um in her whole life um she was a great traveler she you know especially earlier in her life she traveled during the first world war she volunteered with the red cross she also yes. volunteered to help um farmers in france while the men were off fighting on the front lines um she campaigned for women's suffrage in the United States. So she really, she had a crusading spirit as well as an adventuring spirit. And I, I just think that she's, I, I just, I, I would absolutely love to have dinner with her. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which then leads me to ask you about Joyce. What's your oh, take on him? He is a complicated dude. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if we can't be irreverent about our characters, we 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 are not having any fun. Um, so yeah, I mean, he is a really complicated man. I mean, he is obviously a literary genius. I mean, I think yeah. we just absolutely take that for granted. And Sylvia, Sylvia absolutely believed in his genius from day one. Um, and so do I. Um, and I think time has shown the enduring quality of his work in really profound ways. And we're, we're all going to be celebrating the centennial of Ulysses in a couple of weeks. Right. Yes. So, yeah. um, but he was also a human being, you know, he was a, uh, a husband and a father. Um, he was somebody who suffered from various, um, physical ailments, especially in his eyes. Um, he was a person who struggled with alcohol, what we would call now alcohol use disorder. Yes, yes. Um, you know, he was regularly getting, um, you know, there's a great story about him getting wheeled home in a wheelbarrow by um, his fellow, fellow Paris writer, expat friends. Um, so, you know, he was, and he wasn't great with money, um, but he was also, he was generous when he could be. Um, he was, I think, a person who loved and felt the world very deeply i just all i got the i've always got the feeling but after reading your book even more so got the feeling that if you crossed him in conversation he would be just he had rapier wit and that, that yes uh, yes and i and he, i mean in some respects some of my irish literary friends i always think about how much they uh, just look up to joyce and and, and there is a i, I i'm maybe this is crazy to say this but there just seems to me to be amongst the more Gosh, how do I put this politely? But the more educated, intellectually people in Ireland, it it, it seems that they just had this ability with words and and, and grammar and just language mm -hmm. that is so so magnificent. Just love it. Yes, so, yes, yeah. yes. I think the same is true in England. Also, I think oh, yes. the whole the, the the sort of the sort of culture of wit among the educated classes in the whole United Kingdom is really something to behold. I mean, yes, um, it's really, it's, it's, it's really, it's really great. And, you know, it's intimidating, right. Also as a writer to like, you know, and an American, 
I'm an American. Um, <laughs> but it's also fun. And you know, one of one of Sylvia and um Joyce's favorite things to do was to play word games in the store. Um, so they she had that too. And they but of course, because they were both multilingual, it was like multilingual word games as well. Yes. I know that I mean I kind of know the answer to this question, but I, I'm I'm sure you must have thought about actually stepping into the store in the actual time and actually sort of mm. wandering around and, and just enjoying the atmosphere and the ambience. I, I'm sure you must have thought about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had to really kind of imagine myself into the place. Um, it wasn't very big. It was a it was a relatively small space. Um, and, you know, something that I think um, people don't realize about it is it was more library than bookstore. You know, yes. most of the writers, yes. most of the writers who came there were um, broke. And so they couldn't afford to be buying a ton of books, but for a small fee, they could subscribe to the library portion of, of Shakespeare and Company and check out as many books as they wanted. And in fact, fun fact, you can go online to what's called the Shakespeare and Company Project that comes out of Princeton, Princeton University. They own all of her papers and they have digitized all of her library cards. Oh, so you can look up anybody and see what they checked out of Shakespeare oh, and Company, the library portion. And not only have they digitized it and just like listed it so you can read it in regular typeface, they've taken digital photos of the actual library cards in her handwriting. So ah. you can like look up Ernest Hemingway 1926 and see the actual library card where she wrote out what he checked out. Oh, fascinating. Thank you for Isn't that. Isn't that great? That's, yeah, yeah that's it's terrific. really, it's yes. an amazing thing. Yeah, really. Carrie Mayer is my guest. Her book is The Paris Bookseller. It's a most enjoyable read. You did a lot of research for this book. Lots of lots of time just collating information. I'm wondering as you're doing that, did you did you discover anything that was just a a complete surprise to you? Did you come across something which made you go, "Hmm, I hadn't thought about that?" Well, you know, there were a lot of things. I mean, I didn't really understand uh, the legal aspect of the Ulysses um, ah. trial of 1921 until I did this research um, and really what was at stake from a legal perspective and also from a an artistic perspective. So that was fascinating. And, you know, and so so it had this trial in 1921 and then it, it had to go to trial again in the 30s um, in order to become unbanned. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was also really interesting to sort of to read books that were about the trials and like what changed culturally between 1921 and I think it was 1936 when it was retried and became a legal book. Um, and so all of that was new information to me and fascinating. But I, I would say that on a, a sort of a more human level. Um, one of the, my favorite things to discover was that Ezra Pound liked to, to fix and make furniture. <laughs> and so I put that, I put that ah. in the book because, you know, he is also, in addition to being a bit of a, a hobbyist carpenter, he's also a writer at this time, at least in the early twenties, who is putting together this literary movement. Um, he's an, he functions as an editor and as a tastemaker and also as he's writing his own poetry. And he's, he is personally like wooing 
other writers like James Joyce to Paris to, to sort of put everyone together in one place because he really believes that what's happening in literature at this time is going to change the world, and he was right. Kerry, have you ever thought how perfect some people's names are? I've always thought that Ezra Pound. You couldn't make that name up, no. could you? It's, yeah. No, I know. I'm a terrible namer. So actually, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I have to write a, an entirely fictional character and make up a name, I'm always sort of at a loss. <laughs> um, so yeah. I love it when I get to use real, real people's names. Yeah, which is why I guess... Dickens is such a such a uh, an anomaly yes. in that respect. The names that he came up with, just wonderful stuff. Kerry, the the book is, as I've already said, it's a, it's a most enjoyable book. I I'm wondering, and this is a question I kind of always think I, I need to ask authors: the the trials and tribulations of writing a book, particularly <laughs> a book which is fiction yet it's based on on reality so uh, talk to me about just just for you for Kerry Mayer the just the trials and tribulations of, of writing this book if there were any and I'm thinking there were yeah well you know I think I already alluded before to being glad yeah. that it was my third novel and I, yeah. I I didn't you know have to put words in James Joyce's mouth for the first time for, for yes. first go of writing literary uh historical fiction so there's that um you know Everyone I know, all my colleagues who also write in this sort of genre that's known as biographical fiction, which is sort of a yes. niche within historical fiction. So we're writing about real people who people who were once alive. Um, we all struggle with this question and we have varying ways of answering it. But I think that the thing we have in common is this desire, this really deep desire to do right by our subjects, right? Like we, we want to do these, these people who once breathed on planet earth along with us, um, justice, uh, you know, I really, I really want, you really want to bring them to life in an authentic way. Mm. And at the same time, um, we have to respect the fact that these are characters in a specific novel. So my James Joyce, my Adrienne Monnier, my Sylvia Beach are not another writers. Another writer would treat them differently. And I think I really embrace that. You know, a novel is a is a is an act of interpretation of mm. especially and historical fiction is an act of interpreting history and people and historical moments, right? So, um, and I've had to really embrace that, uh, that aspect of it. Otherwise, if I couldn't embrace that, I don't think I'd ever write. Like I, I you know, it would be just too daunting. Yes. Um, so I have to hold both of those things at the same time. It is, it is trying to do justice to the, the real lives that were lived at the same time, it, knowing that it's an interpretation of those lives. Yes. Well, I'm glad that you spent the time doing the research and I'm glad that you wrote the book because it is, as I, as I keep saying, it's most enjoyable. I've got to make one note about the cover. It's a delightful painting illustration on the cover. But um, I yes. So oh, there you have it. Right. The painting behind you. Yes. Ah, how lovely. <laughs> but I have seen another cover, which I guess maybe is the UK edition, which looks different. Yeah, the, the one of the sort of a close up of a woman's torso yes, holding books. Yes, That's the yeah. UK edition. It's yeah. a beautiful cover, too. It's, it's a good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think covers are so important, particularly when they really capture the essence of of what the writer was intending. And this one certainly does that. It's just it's I, evokes everything. I love it. Yeah. Kerry, it is a delight talking to you. I, I I really enjoyed reading your book. Highly recommend it. Thank you so much for joining us once again at Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you today.
Kerry May has been talking to me. The book is called The Paris Bookseller. Kerry, thank you so much. Thank you. You know, your feedback is always welcome. So why don't you let me know what you think of Life Elsewhere? Send me your thoughts to Norman B at lifeelsewhere.co. Now, don't worry if you didn't catch my address just then. It comes up again in the closing credits. Some of the new music that comes in my direction can be hard to classify, and I think that's a good thing. But I'm sure some artists would rather not have to come up with genres for their music. For example, Levenswelt described their LP, Unspoken Words, as experimental, dreamy, melancholic, post-minimalism, and so on. Descriptions that almost seem at odds with each other. Now take a listen to come back again and see if you can come up with a suitable classification.
From Under My Bed recordings out of Italy, you heard Come Back Again from the LP Unspoken Words by Levensfeld. All the full details are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Simply go to show number 459. Now here's another example of music that defies classification. But no matter, just like Levensfeld, I love this one. It's Anne Meal with Elegy for an Empty Ocean. And this is the Silver Field Mix from the album Cloud Divine, Remembered.
Do send me your feedback on the music I selected. Perhaps you can conjure up a fitting description or two. We just heard Anna Alves, a.k.a. Anne Meal, with Elegy for an Empty Ocean. And that was the Silver Field mix. Now this is a cut from a wonderfully mysterious album, Cloud Divine, Remembered. You can also indulge in the hypnotic video that goes along with that cut. All the details are up at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. A big thank you to my guests, Jean Chen Ho and Kerry Maher. And a large thank you to you for listening. Remember, the podcasts for Life Elsewhere are up at all the usual platforms, including Anchor FM and Mixcloud. Till next time, be well, be safe, and most importantly, always be nice. You know it costs nothing. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind-the-scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you.